Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. You got one of the outline sheets this evening. We're turning in our Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We've been focused of late on the topic of angelology or the study of angels as revealed in God's Word. The ministry of angels is our theme this evening, and we'll do our best to get through as much of this outline as possible, but I'm not guaranteeing that we'll get through it this evening, and I trust you'll forgive me along the way. I know we, if you see a number two by that uh, title at the top, the ministry of angels, two, I'm hoping that we won't go more than four, but we'll start, start here with two this evening, all right? First Corinthians chapter two is where we're turning. An article was published in October of 2022 by Antonio Pagliarolo. The number of Americans, it noted, was that, da- that are dabbling in witchcraft and the occult is increasing dramatically in America. So in the article that was published this October of 2022, it noted that in 1990, Trinity College in Connecticut estimated that there were 8,000 adherents of Wicca in America, W-I-C-C-A. So what's Wicca? Well, Wicca is a, yeah, it's a witchcraft. It, it was, when it was first formed, the people who are part of the Wicca group called themselves neo-pagans, neo-paganism. But it moved and morphed from neo-paganism to a, a I guess, more of a culturally acceptable title. It's Wicca, but it's modern uh, witchcraft. In 2008, the U.S. Census Bureau came out with a figure that there were 342,000 people who were involved in Wicca. That's a dramatic increase from 8,000 in 1990. 18 years later, 342,000. In 2014, six years after that, a Pew Research Center study increased the projection several times over, assessing that 0.4% of Americans are identified as pagan or Wiccan or New Age in their practices, that means there's over one million Americans who are involved in the practice of witchcraft. Now, for some, that might not not be a a great revelation, but for others this evening, you're thinking, well, I've never met one, and so what's the importance of knowing that? Well, the Bible and the Bible alone gives us a comprehensive understanding when it comes to the spirit world. And so we've opened our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we read, beginning in verse 6, Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect or mature, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Now, that's a verse that we often focus on when we think of all things heavenly. But in the context here, he's speaking of the wonderful mystery of God's revelation given to us for our understanding. And he continues in verse 10, that God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God, For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. Now, we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, 
that we might know the things that are freely given us of God, which things also we speak, not in words, which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Ghost teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for their foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. We're looking at the, to- the doctrine of angels, and we need to recognize that without the revelation of God's Word, we have nothing to go on. And so when we hear of witchcraft and those people that are involved in it, you realize that their knowledge of the spirit world, if you will, is not a knowledge that's grounded in the revelation of God's Word. And so when we think about the study of angels, there are some practical realities to the study of angels that we ought to consider even from the outset. Why would we study angelology? Well, folks, when we study angelology, angelology, we come to appreciate in an even greater way the sovereignty of God over not only what we see, but what we don't see. That our master creator has created things that we see and appreciate and beyond what we can see, the number of a- the angels are 10,000 times 10,000s and thousands and thousands, and yet God has revealed something of this to us. By studying angels, I trust we gain some measure of comfort in knowing that our God is sovereign and that He assigns these wonderful beings to His specific work. In the study of angels, we learn something of the holiness of God. God's so holy that even when the angels fell and did not keep their first estate, they were kept in chains of darkness. We learn much of the grace of God in our lives because after all, those angels which fell and kept not their first estate, there is no plan of salvation for them. And yet for us, who are created a little less than the angels, God in His grace has seen fit to provide for our redemption. And I trust that when we consider the topic of angels, we become more fortified in our spiritual walk. Now, 34 of the 66 books in the Bible will bring up the topic of angels. At least 350 references in the Bible to the topic of angels. And so, we've been giving the last seven weeks to this study, and this evening we resume by talking about their ministry to God. We highlighted this the last time we met. Take your Bibles and go to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. God who's the creator of angels, created the angels to accomplish specific purposes according to His plan. We discovered already that they are ministers of worship. They're ministers of worship. We see them highlighted in worship in Isaiah chapter 6, as with two, fa- two, two wings they cover their face and two wings they cover their feet. Two wings they do fly as they cry out, holy, holy, holy. Revelation chapter 6 demonstrates them involved in worship as well. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 6, they rest not day or night saying, holy, 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 thou art worthy, Lord. They're involved in worship in heavenly places. When we talk about the angels and what they do, we recognize them being involved in worship. Do they have anything to do with our worship? Do they have anything to do with our worship? Anybody think of any references in the Bible on angels being, being involved at any level with earth, earthly worship? Born. 
that's good. Yes, when Jesus was born, they were there with Mary and Joseph, and I think they were encouraging the worship service of the shepherds there in the fields. Can you think of any? It's interesting, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the 10th verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you don't need to turn there, but it's an interesting verse. If you remember the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I remember the context because a teenage, as a teenager, there was a song that uh, Theron Babcock wrote. He, he wrote many great songs of the faith. I'm just kidding. There's one in our hymnal, and it's a good song, but he, he would write a song every night in evangelistic meetings. He traveled with Hal Webb, and we've had Barry Webb, Hal Webb's son here. And some of you, anybody ever hear Hal Webb and Theron Babcock? Okay, good, a couple people. So Hal Webb and Theron Babcock would come, and they had all kinds of instrument, interesting instruments. I remember their ministry for a couple of things. One of them's kind of funny. They would do chalk art, and I, I think it was Hal Webb that did the chalk art. When I was in junior high, I had a psychedelic tie, and I was wearing it when Hal Webb was doing chalk art, and I was sitting down front, and when he turned his black lights on, my tie blinded everybody in the auditorium, and I, was, I, I don't think I've ever been so embarrassed at a, at a service. I remember being in some of the services, and, and one of the things that they would do is Darren Babcock would set a piano and an organ side by side, and he'd play one instrument with one hand, one instrument with the other, and his feet were going everywhere, and he was quite an interesting musician. So people would call out things during the service. Right before the offering was taken, uh, they would say, you know, he would say, any themes for a song tonight? And so somebody yelled out, heaven can't wait. And he wrote the song, I'm going to heaven, can't wait, going to see Jesus, can't wait. Uh, somebody else yelled out one night, I'm no kin to the monkey. I love that song. Uh, you ever heard that song? We hear a lot of talk about the evolution. Uh, no, that's, that's the other one. Um, I'm no kin to the monkey. The monkey's no kin to me. I don't know much about your ancestors, but mine never swung with the tree. Uh, that's classic Theron Babcock. Uh, and one of the songs that he wrote that I'll never forget because I was a teenager at this time, 1 Corinthians 11 is still in the book. I know that it's there because I just took a look. For a man to have long hair, it says, is a shame. I've never forgotten where I can find out about men's hairstyles. It's in 1 Corinthians 11. I learned that in the Theron Babcock song. But in that same context, there's a statement that's made, and the statement is made about angels. For this reason ought a woman to have her head covered, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, because of the angels. Hmm. Now, there will be those who will say, that means in the worship service, the woman's head's to be covered because the angels are looking in. There are others who say, no, 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 that's not what it means. What it means is the angels recognize the necessity of authority, and if anyone would, the angels should, because having diminished the authority of God, many of their compatriots, one-third of them, lost their first estate. So when we're dealing with the woman wearing a head covering in 1 Corinthians 11, the purpose there is to show a demonstration of living under the authority of one's husband. So some people will go to 1 Corinthians 11 and say, the angels are watching over the service and especially interested in how the ladies in the service are uh, living with a reverential view to the headship in their home. I've turned to 1 Timothy chapter 5 this evening, and if you turn there, look what the Apostle Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5. This book, by the way, is a local church book. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 15 is the subject 
of 1 Timothy, that you may know how to behave yourself in the church of God, which is the pillar and ground of the truth. That's the theme of the whole 1 Timothy. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 2, we're told to pray for those who are in rulership over us. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're told about deacons and we're told about uh, pastors. Now in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19, against an elder, receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. And them that sin, rebuke before all. Here's a good principle. Uh, It's a Bible principle. It's a required principle. If you hear somebody making an accusation against a pastor, an elder, stop them in mid-sentence and say, hey, listen, before you finish that sentence, I need to get two or three witnesses over here. This passage says, against an elder, don't receive any accusation except before two or three witnesses. And them that sin, if it's true that the elder, the church leader, the pastor has sinned, they are to be rebuked before all. Now, why does the pastor have that requirement to no one else? When others sin, we don't rebuke them before all. But when the elder sins and it's confirmed that he's sinned, there's a public admonishment. Why? He says, Shepherd. They're held to a higher account. Some people would say, well, that doesn't seem fair. Uh, Shocking thought. God's not concerned about your thoughts of fairness. God's concerned about his standards of holiness. And so God says this is the way it's to be. If an elder has sinned, and it's, it's known, it's confirmed, they're to be rebuked before all. They're held to a higher standard, and to whom much is given, much will be required. But look what he says now. In verse 21, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels, Timothy, that thou observe these things without preferring one another, doing nothing by partiality, lay hands suddenly on no man. Yeah, the angels are called upon as witnesses as Paul sends a charge through the pastoral epistle to Timothy and through that pastoral epistle to us. But this is the conduct that's required. And oh, by the way, The angels are looking on. We'll come back to that thought as to why. But the angels, yes, they're ministers of worship. They're ministers of service. Hebrews chapter 1 says in verse 7, are they not all ministering spirits? And the word that's used spirit there comes from the Greek word lutreo, which has to do with worship. And so ministering spirits, not just from the spirit world, but they're in priestly service. But in their priestly service, they are not intercessors. What's an intercessor? Yeah, good. Somebody said it. Go between. Okay. And the angels are not intercessors. Does anybody know how many archangels the Roman Catholic Church teaches there are? So we, uh, Jay and I had this conversation after one of our Wednesday nights on angels, and he said, Pastor, the Bible does say Michael the archangel. We have another angel named Gabriel, but it doesn't call him an archangel. I said, you know, you're right. It doesn't. We've assumed Gabriel's an archangel because those are the only two angels that are named in the scriptures, Michael and Gabriel. So Roman Catholic tradition, how many angels, archangels are there? Anybody know? Seven. Okay, where do they get that? Well, they get that from an apocryphal book called the Book of Enoch. In the Book of Enoch, there are seven different angels that are named, Michael and Gabriel being among them. And so when we talk of the seven spirits of God, 
The Roman Catholics would line those up to be those seven archangels that are named in the book of Enoch. And the Roman Catholics teach that if you are going on a trip and you want to have some extra protection, there is an archangel who's good to pray to if you want protection in your trip. Does anybody know the name of that archangel? Well, somebody said St. Christopher, which is really good. You have to be a little bit older to say that. Is that you, Diana? Oh, you, yeah, yeah, good. There's an older, former Roman Catholic, praise the Lord. Good. So, St. Christopher, you know, uh, the Catholic tradition was to give names and then a christening name. And when you're christened, you'd have an added name, so it wasn't unusual for a Roman Catholic person to have four names, first name, middle name, christening name, last name. And many Roman Catholics, I can still remember this because I'm older too, used to have on the dashboard of their car, right? Some of you are shaking your heads now, St. Christopher. And then Vatican II came along and spoiled the whole thing. A lot of people had probably had a lot of inventory of St. Christopher's that they're still sitting on because they decided St. Christopher never, they have no historical record of St. Christopher. He was kind of a mythological saint. And so they did away with St. Christopher, the patron saint of the traveler. But there's an archangel who's to be prayed to. His name is Raphael. Raphael is the archangel who's to be prayed to, according to Roman Catholic tradition, for those who are traveling. What's wrong with that? I, I see some Baptists shaking their heads no on this. But it's always good not just to be a Baptist, to be a, a Bible-centered Baptist, right? So what's wrong with praying to Raphael, biblically? I feel like saying, anybody want to raise their hand tonight? <laughs> okay, back there, Mike, go. We are not to pray to the angels. That's right. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, there's one God, finish it with me, one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now that settles it. We don't pray uh, to anyone else but the Lord Jesus Christ as the intercessor. But the angels are personal messengers for God throughout the Bible. Psalm 103 verse 19, the Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens and his kingdom ruleth over all. Bless the Lord ye his angels that excel in strength and do his commandments. And so when an angel is dispatched, Gabriel, to speak to Elizabeth and to, I'm sorry, uh, to Elizabeth's husband about uh, her pending pregnancy, Zacharias. Gabriel comes. Gabriel comes and speaks to Joseph about, uh, fear not to take unto you Mary, thy wife. But we don't expect to uh, have angels speak to us. And we got hung up on that last week. So I'm going to slide by it. If you recall, we talked last week about why not. And the answer to that, of course, is 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19 says, we have a far more sure word of prophecy. We have the Bible. And you're better off with the Bible than having an angel speak to you. And boy, you better be careful on this one. If any spirit ever appears to you and shares that that spirit is sharing with you God's word, um, wake up from that dream real fast and don't go back to it. Because yes, uh, there are evidences in God's word communication of angels, but in the dispensation in which we live, far more preferred is the revelation that God has given to us His Word. That which is perfect, 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 10, has come, 
and that which is in part is done away. So we noted also they're ministers of government, and we noted in Daniel chapter 4 that the Word of God says God rules in the kingdom of men, and one of the ways that we see that in the book of Daniel is you'll see Daniel in chapter 10 praying, and the angel that comes, most people think it's Gabriel, the, the messenger angel, the angel that comes that speaks to Daniel there in Daniel chapter 10, that angel that comes says, I, I was delayed for three weeks because I had this wrestling match with, I, hear, I heard it, the prince of Persia, right, some spiritual being that was trying to hold back the revelation of God. They're ministers of God in government, sometimes controlling nature. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 1, I saw four angels standing in the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth that the wind should not blow. Revelation 16 and verse 8, the fourth angel pours out his vial on the sun, and it becomes extremely intense. The angels have more capacity for global climate change than we could ever personally imagine. And you'll see that in the book of the Revelation. At times, they control the nations. There's a war in heaven, the Bible talks about in Revelation chapter 12, between Michael and Lucifer. And when Lucifer is cast down, he knows his time is short. And my, the international intrigue that breaks out at that point. I believe, and we mentioned this last week, that when you look back at circumstances in the world in which we're living and realize the atrocities of certain people, typically when people focus on atrocities, they tend to focus on Hitler. And pretty much everybody's agreed that if anybody's deserving of hell, Hitler's deserving of hell. Estimations of the number of lives lost during World War II are between 400 and 500 million people. Anybody know how many Russians have died in the recent battle between Ukraine and Russia? How many Russian soldiers they're estimating have died? The estimate I got last week, it's a pretty good source from Derek Thomas, who's over there in Ukraine right now, 250,000 at minimum Russians have died in this Ukrainian battle. Over half a million lives have been taken, far fewer Ukrainian soldiers. But you just freeze frame that for a minute. Half a million lives in a year. He was a murderer from the beginning, John 8, 44. And when you think of things like Mr. Putin beginning this war, and we have all the different international intrigue that would start it, and you read the book of Daniel and realize there was a prince of Persia, you can pretty well guarantee you there's a prince over Eastern Europe as well. And boy, the carnage that it's cost. So yes, I believe that the angels are involved, uh, often in wrestling matches even today, with Satan, who's the prince of the power of the air, and that ongoing battle continues. Then they minister to God's people. Take your Bibles and go to Psalm 35, Psalm 35, the 35th Psalm, the Psalm makes it quite clear and other places in God's Word make it clear that the angels are involved with the people of God. We could start maybe in Psalm 34, Psalm 34, the seventh verse, the angel of the Lord campeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. Now we've learned that there's a special capacity of the phrase the angel of the Lord, it's a revelation of Jehovah in the Old Testament Scriptures, but if you let your eye go across the page to the 35th Psalm, verse 4, David is praying. This is an imprecatory prayer. 
What's that? The precatory prayer is a prayer for the enemies to be chastened, for the enemies of David. So, do we pray in precatory prayers in the New Testament? Sometimes I ask, you know, Pastor Brandon and Pastor Ben are both here this evening. Sometimes I ask them uh, or uh, let them know, hey, pray for these things when we begin the morning service. I haven't yet heard either of them stand up in the morning service and pray that someone would be smitten, joint and thigh, marrow and sinew, that God would allow their hair to fall out in patches. And imprecatory prayers are like that. They're praying for God's judgment upon the enemies of people. And we read in Psalm 35, an imprecatory prayer, David praying about his enemies. He begins in verse 1, plead my cause, O Lord, with them that strive with me, fight against them that fight against me. And he says in verse 4, let them be confounded and put to shame that seek after my soul. Let them be turned back and brought to confusion that devise my hurt. Let them be as chaff before the wind and let the angel of the Lord chase them. So yes, the angels of God are involved with God's people. They're involved many times in the work of judgment. And so we're going to go to that in just a moment. But maybe I should ask a question. I asked a lot of questions tonight and been hastening on. Angels involved with God's people, the 91st Psalm, I love the 91st Psalm and have read it to people in the hospital many times. He'll give his angel charge concerning thee to keep thee in all thy ways, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. And so, as I said last week, all you have to do is be a parent for a little while and you believe in guardian angels. Here's a question that crossed my mind in preparation for this conversation this evening. So, there are guardian angels. I believe that. I don't believe that I have an individual guardian angel assigned to me, but I do believe that God's angels watch over. Do not they all, all these who watch these little ones, their face is also in heaven. I believe in guardian angels. Should I pray when my teenage child gets a license for the first time and takes their car for the first time? Oh, Lord, assign a couple of guardian angels tonight. <laughs> Would that be an appropriate prayer? Down front, they're saying yes. In the back, they're shaking their heads no. No, I'm just kidding. They're not. <laughs> I'm hearing yeses. I don't think it's an inappropriate prayer. It's inappropriate to ask the angel to pray on your behalf. It's not inappropriate to ask God to dispatch an angel. That's what David's doing. Now, will we know if that prayer is answered? If they come home safe. Maybe not until eternity, but it's not necessarily a bad prayer. You know that old song that says, all night, all day, angels watching over me, my Lord. And I'll tell you what, if you drive 465 coming on Wednesday night to church, you know that's true, especially if Pastor Tom's on the road when you're coming. <laughs> Psalm 78, I saw him sneak in back there, and I just wanted to make sure I'm aware of his presence. Psalm 78, the angels are ministers of God's judgment. They're ministers of God's judgments. 78th Psalm. Now, we don't have to turn to Psalm 78 to know that. In Genesis chapter 19, we see the angel of the Lord, two accompanying angels, Genesis chapter 19, who were showing up in Sodom. And before they go to Sodom, 
they have a conversation with Abraham. By the way, um, Cody Bruce forwarded me a link this week that I really appreciated. And as I researched that link a little bit more, um, he forwarded me a link about this, the archaeological discovery of Sodom. Well, that caught my attention. And so I followed a little bit, bit and I saw an article by a fellow that I, I like to read after. His name is Joel Rosenberg. Joel Rosenberg wrote Epicenter. He's a born-again Jewish man, lives most of the time in Israel. If you haven't read some of his writings, especially if you're into prophetic uh, novels, Joel Rosenberg is your guy. He's, a, he's a biblically accurate, uh, takes a pre-tribulational, premillennial position, uh, and he is a brilliant, brilliant man who's worked in high levels of politics on both sides of uh, the world. But uh, he was interviewing a fellow by the name of Stephen Collins, Stephen Collins, who's recently an archaeologist, been reporting on the discovery of Sodom on the north rim of the Dead Sea. And when they said, how do you know it's Sodom? One of the things that caught my attention, he said, well, in the archaeological dig, we found um, pottery from the Bronze Age. Good. He said, but it was unique pottery. He said, the pottery that we found from the Bronze Age was um, on one side of it, it looked like it had been uh, glazed, but not the other side, which is unique. And they sent it to laboratories, and they said that the glazing on that one side would require heat at least 4,000 degrees hot. And there was no kiln in that time that would ever have been able to do a 4,000 degree heat. In the further exploration, they were noting even how some of the bone structures were found, and it really, from what their studies say, some of you who are more into the sciences would appreciate this, it looked like a meteorite hit that particular place in the world, and you might want to go there. But yeah, clearly the angels are involved in the destruction of Sodom. Genesis chapter 19 tells us that. The angels were involved in the plagues of Egypt, and so we've opened our Bibles to Psalm 78. And in Psalm 78, we begin in verse 43. How he had wrought, he's talking about the history of Israel, how he'd wrought signs in Egypt and his wonders in the field of Zoan, had turned their rivers into blood, their fl floods that they could not drink. He sent divers sorts of flies. Okay, now we're into the plagues of Egypt among them, which devoured them, and frogs which destroyed them. He gave also their increase to the caterpillar and their labor under the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail, their sycamore trees with frost. He gave up their cattle also to the hail and their flocks to hot thunderbolts and cast upon them the fierceness of his anger and wrath and indignation and trouble by sending evil angels among them. So yes, God uses his angels at times as ministers of judgment in the world. And my, when you come to the book of the Revelation, how you see the angels as ministers of God's judgment. In Revelation chapter 6, they're opening the seals. In Revelation chapter 8, they're sounding the trumpets. In Revelation 12, they're casting down Satan. In Revelation 14, they're thrusting in the sickle to judge the world. And in Revelation 16, they're pouring out the bowls. So yes, God's angels. Now, why say all that? We're back to where we started. We have a world, we spoke about this on Sunday night, that we see. But the Bible tells us that there's a world that we don't see that's eternal. We get fixated on the things that we see, but it's the things that we don't see that can give us hope. And so our eyes are to be heavenward. And God, in His kindness, has opened up in Scripture 
to help us see parts of this world. And the angels that kept their first estate, who are in holiness serving the Lord, are involved in the affairs of this world. And by the way, they're much more powerful than we are. And so their ministry to Christ is something that we ought to consider, their ministry to Christ. While Christ participates in the ministry of the angels as a member of the Godhead, He specifically receives their ministry as the God-man. This has already been alluded to this evening, but at His birth, it was the angels who prophesied in Matthew chapter 1, Fear not, Joseph, to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived of her is of the Holy Ghost. It was the angel who spoke to Mary in Luke chapter 1 and tells her that that which is going to be born of her is that which is the promise of God. In Luke chapter 2, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior which is Christ the Lord. But during his life, take your Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. During his life, we see the angels and their ministry to Jesus and to, his, to the first family, if you will, on several occasions. In Matthew chapter 2, it's the angel of the Lord who comes to Joseph and tells him to take the Christ child down into Egypt. Again in Matthew chapter 2, it's an angel who comes to Joseph and tells Joseph to take Jesus up to Nazareth. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus was strengthened after his temptation in verse 11 by an angel. In Luke chapter 22, the angels come to the Lord Jesus in Gethsemane, strengthening him in the Spirit. And in Matthew chapter 26, the 53rd verse, Jesus says, Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels? Now, a Roman legion was between 3,000 and 6,000 soldiers. Jesus is talking about the Father's ability to dispatch at his command a great company of angels. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do it because the Scriptures will be fulfilled. He would be led as a lamb to the slaughter and die in our place. But I do love that song that says, He could have called 10,000 angels. And He could have. After His resurrection, you'll see the angels ministering in the life of Christ. In Matthew chapter 28, it was the angel, you recall, who first announced there at the graveside the one that they were looking for isn't there because he's risen. By the way, somebody has said, God didn't dispatch the angel to remove the stone to let Jesus out. He dispatched the angel to remove the stone so the world can see that Jesus is out. But the angels are there. And after his ascension, the angels were placed under the authority of a man the God-man. And so now the Bible talks about a restructuring of heaven, if you will. Remember the psalmist says, what is man that thou thinkest of him? For you've created him a little lower than the angels. But when we take our Bibles this evening and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, something happens that must have mystified the angels. 
First Peter, I'm going to begin in chapter 3. Peter likes to t- talk about the angels. In 1 Peter chapter 3, he talks about Christ in verse 22, who's gone into heaven, is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Now, we would assume that, after all, Jesus prayed in John 17, that he would be restored to the glory that he had before the incarnation. Now, in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 22, there he is. All of creation is subject to him. But when we go to 1 Peter chapter 1, we read in verse 10, of this salvation which the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner the Spirit of, God, of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand of the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves but unto us they did minister these things, which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. What things? The whole incarnation of Christ. The whole effect of His crucifixion on the cross. The whole rejoicing of the redemption that we enjoy. Those are things that cause the angels to inquire and ask, what's the meaning of all this? And it's especially apropos that we consider that because the book of the Revelation says and the book of Ephesians says that when we come to Christ as Savior, we are seated with Him in heavenly places. So remember I said the order of the universe changes, God, the angels, man. How does that change? We are made lower than the angels, but because we're in Christ and we're seated with Him in heavenly places, 1 Corinthians 6 says one day we're going to judge the angels. So God has now changed the order because of the work of redemption. It's God, the redeemed, and the angels. How did that happen? Because we're seated with Him and we're heirs together with Christ. No wonder the angels want to look into this. How did all that happen? It happened by God's redemptive plan. That's amazing, and it's amazing, and it's humbling. That song that says, holy, holy, holy is what the angels sing, and I intend to help them make the courts of heaven ring, but when I sing redemption story, they will fold their wings. Angels never knew the joy that my salvation brings. When we talk about the ministry of angels, we can see them also at His second coming. Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye here gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken from you up into heaven will likewise come again. The angels were talking about His coming. Matthew 25 says in verse 31, when the Son of Man shall come in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then will He sit upon the throne of His glory. The angels will worship Him at His return. Hebrews 1 says in verse 6, when He bringeth in the firstborn of the world, He says, let all the angels of God worship Him. And if you turn to Matthew 24, we're going to end here this evening. Matthew 24 and verse 31. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 31. Matthew 24, verse 31. One day when the Lord Jesus comes, 
Look at the scene that's painted that the Savior promised in verse 31. He shall send his angels with the sound, great sound of the trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. I believe this is at the end of the tribulation. But those who have come to Christ as Savior will be specially escorted by the holy angels who gather them together from the four corners of the world, even to the other. Yes, the angels are involved in his second coming. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast. Thank you.